Blog Talk Radio. humanity, human being, human love, on a spiritual tip, so vast, so great, the African embrace, live beyond love beyond your skin to where you belong Nigga, dance. Do you send a girl? Bubble, let me go to Africa. 
time to take kids down. For the nine to say, oh, it's all about that I'm getting up. Don't you rub? You know me now. I'm running so fast. Get the fuck when I load up a gun. Only drop. Oh, keep up town. Let's keep up town. This is big town. Look at the buzz. Look at the head. Look at look at the good. Original one. Keep up town. Let's keep up town. This is big town. Look at the buzz. Look at the head. Look at look at the good. Original How do we be? We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. You see, it started a long time ago and it wasn't a show. We gave birth to a style like a precocious child. Feeling the passion for life, erasing away all the strife. Telling our tales with verbal mail, putting honey on the blade, creating language to persuade. Share who we've always been. Always a blessing, never a sin. We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. And always walk tall. Cause we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls. Everyone can wear. Everyone can share. We can't live in despair. So we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on. On and on. We welcome you to Africa on the Moon. As your host, Brother Africa, it's an honor and a privilege to come to your home this evening where we can speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. On the 19th day of June, years 2022, our theme tonight is Africa Today. That's right, we're going to talk about Africa Today, but along with our theme, we also invited Brother Phil Walito, who will give his perspective on Ukraine. Then we will follow the discussion of the theme, Africa Today, where we take a look at Uganda, we take a look at the relationship between France and West Africa. We take a look at the relationship between China and Africa. So those are our major items of discussion for today. We invite you to join us by dialing in at 323-679-0841. As your host, Brother Africa, we may not give you what you want, but we can try to give you definitely what you need. So we welcome you and thank you again for allowing us to come to your home this evening. And you know how we get started with that. We're going to introduce to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. At this time, we'd like to welcome Brother Haki to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Haki. Hey, Brother Africa. Thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamathi Mishoki. Colonel with African Awareness, and of course, Brother Africa, you know my thing is all about institution building. Now, I'm going to dispense with the normal uh, commentary I use to present because we have a guest coming on shortly. But one of the things I find very, very extraordinary in terms of the political realm 
is Joe Biden's um, uh, insistence on providing these licenses for these oil and gas uh, companies, uh, despite the fact that the, the uh, pen is on the precipice of, of actually uh, uh, defaulting. So clearly this notion in terms of people having the right to exist in, on this planet is not being taken into consideration when you think about uh, the kind of um, uh, uh, um, kind of uh, ideas that are put into motion by people in positions of power. So clearly we got some very very deep problems in terms of just being the survivor of this planet. And so it seems to me that it's incumbent upon all people to actually to uh, to wake to awaken and to realize the peril that we are confronted with. And particularly when you talk about a, a ruling class that's very insensitive to life itself, then it becomes even more incumbent that we actually recognize what the issues are and to mobilize around those issues and stand together to fight for the right for this planet to exist. And I'll close that, Brother Africa. Again, thanks for having me. Thank you, Brother Haki. Following Brother Haki, we will now bring in Brother Anthony, and we would like to welcome Brother Anthony to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And following Brother Anthony, we will bring in our sister Eleanor and welcome her to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Sister Eleanor. Good evening, Brother Africa, fellow panelists, and to our listening audience in the United States and worldwide. My name is Eleanor Johnson. Thank you so much for inviting me uh, to participate this evening. Thank you, and good evening, and happy Juneteenth Day to everyone. And from Sister Eleanor, we will now bring in Brother Maurice, and welcome Brother Maurice to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Maurice. Revolutionary greetings, Brother Africa and fellow panelists. I'm happy to be back on Africa on the Move. Again, my name is Brother Maurice. I am a worker for the people, supporter of AAPRPGC, and an organizer for the P, uh, PRSP, Pan-African Revolutionary Socialist Party. Thank you so much for having me back. It's good to hear everybody's voices. All right. So far, you have heard our panelists for today's program. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a revolutionary break, bring you some revolutionary culture, and when we come back, we hope to have our guest, Brother Phil Walito. If not, we will start with what's going on in our world and community. This is Africa on the Move. <laughs> Africa, do you 
We don't know who set the world on fire, but we do know we're about to set the world on fire right now with a brother who has been to Europe, who's been traveling to Europe, who's been monitoring the political movements and situation in Europe. And we'd like to hear an alternative perspective on Ukraine. And we are so honored to have with us Brother Phil Walito, who is an organizer for an organization called Defenders. And they also have an excellent independent newspaper called The Defenders, Freedom, Justice, and Equality. And Brother Phil will share with us his perspective on Ukraine, what is really taking place and going on, and how we can better understand this confusion that is going on right now between Ukraine, Russia, and the rest of the world. So right now, we would like to welcome Brother Phil to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Phil. Hello, Brother Lee. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Brother Phil, we're going to turn the mic over to you because we would like for you to set the tone of giving us an alternative perspective from your understanding of what's going on in Ukraine. Why this war? Well, it's a very complicated subject, uh, and most people in the United States uh, know very little about the background uh, that has brought us to this point. Um, And so what I'd like to do is go a little bit into the history of of Ukraine and uh, the U.S. relationship to it and how we got to the present point. Um, the the short uh, version is that uh, ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, back in 1991, um, the United States has pursued a policy um, of hostility towards Russia. Um, the Soviet Union collapsed, and there were uh, you know, many countries that, that came out of that, the former republics of the Soviet Union, and one was the, the Russian Federation. And uh, the military uh, apparatus that the U.S. has used in its aggression against Russia is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, which was set up after World War II to counter the Soviet Union. Um and which had been an ally up to that point. Um, and then when the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, uh, the U.S. promised uh, the new Russian Federation that uh, NATO would not expand uh, further east towards Russia, um, but would stay uh, where it was in, basically in Western Europe. And in return, um, the U.S. wanted Russia to allow uh, East and West Germany to reunite capitalist West Germany and socialist East Germany to unite and to be part of the Western uh, economic and military alliance. Um, and Gorbachev agreed on the condition that NATO would not be expanding eastward toward Russia. Um, since that point, all 14 countries that have joined NATO, so now it's up to 30 members, um, all all new members have been to the east uh, of Germany, right up to the border of Russia. Um, And now uh, 
Sweden and Finland uh, want to join the NATO alliance, and Finland has a land border with Russia. Ukraine has put into its constitution that it wants to join NATO, and it has a 1,200-mile land border with Russia. Georgia, which has a land border with Russia, uh, also wants to join NATO. Um, and if all of this uh, goes forward, Russia would be surrounded on its uh, western flank by uh, countries that are members of a military alliance sworn to uh, come to each other's aid if one of them gets into a war. Um, what, what's, what's the reason for this hostility? It's nothing other than that uh, Russia is a country that, uh, independent of the United States, uh, militarily, politically, diplomatically, uh, that the U.S. does not control, either directly or indirectly. And any country that is in that position um, winds up in the crosshairs of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, we've seen that in Cuba, in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, in North Korea, in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, any, any country that does not accept U.S. Uh, leadership in the world economically, militarily, politically, um, comes under fire. Um, and some people may say, well, look at Russia. They invaded uh, Ukraine, um, and so therefore that's proof that it's a dangerous country. Well, China hasn't invaded anyone. Um, China has a, a large uh, land-based uh, military, but uh, nothing compared to the U.S. in terms of a Navy or Air Force. Um, as a matter of fact, it has one overseas military base, um, and the United States has 800 in 70 countries, and Russia has uh, uh, eight um, uh, overseas military bases. And again, the U.S. has 800. So um, it, it's, uh, I would make the argument that uh, U.S. hostility to China, to Russia, to Iran, Venezuela, Nicaragua, North Korea, Cuba, um, all has to do with the need of U.S. capitalism to uh, expand and dominate. Uh, it's constantly looking for cheaper raw materials, uh, for uh, more markets, for cheap labor. Um, and it's not interested in fair and equitable trade relationships with the rest of the world, um, with the possible exception of some of its closest European allies or Canada. Um, but its historical relationship to the continent of Africa has always been the typical neo-colonialist approach of extracting raw materials and selling back uh, manufactured goods and keeping countries underdeveloped so that they are dependent upon uh, the U.S. Uh, for, for uh, unfavorable trade relations. Um, so NATO has been the, uh, the instrument by which uh, the U.S. has corralled uh, these other 29 countries, uh, Canada and the rest of the countries are in Europe, um, and as well as Turkey, um, to, into a military alliance um, that it basically controls. Um, it's, in a sense, it's really created an international military force that can be used to fight wars uh, where the U.S. doesn't want to commit its own troops uh, either uh, at all or to the extent that they might have to 
uh, if they were not in an alliance. So NATO has fought wars. Um, it's fought wars in Afghanistan. Uh, it's fought wars in Syria. And it destroyed the African country of Libya, uh, which under uh, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi had uh, the highest standard of living of any country in Africa and promoted African independence and Pan-Africanism and weaning away from, uh, from the economic dependence on the U.S. dollar. Um, and the uh, NATO, um, under the direction of the U.S. commander-in-chief at the time, Barack Obama, destroyed this African country. And today it is a failed state and a haven for extremist organizations who have taken the weapons that they got uh, from Libya and have spread throughout Western Africa in a reign of terror in Mali, uh, in Niger, uh, in Burkina Faso, um, and, and other countries of, of the region. Um, I bring that up to show that NATO is not a benevolent organization. Um, it is a, uh, it's a military force that has a, a wretched record. Um, I should also mention uh, the, the bombing campaign against Yugoslavia um, in the uh, late 80s, um, I'm sorry, uh, in the 90s, in which uh, more bombs were dropped on that formerly socialist country than in all of Europe uh, in World War II. Um, people don't remember that war now, but that was a NATO-led war under the direction of the United States. So if you're in Russia and you look out to the West and you see this vast military alliance that has this uh, rapacious record in Libya, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, and other countries, um, you would naturally feel nervous. Um, and when the country with the largest land border, Ukraine, uh, announces that it wants to join NATO, um, you would be very nervous. It would be like uh, if Russia or China had formed a military alliance with all the countries of Latin America, Mexico, and uh, was recruiting Mexico into this alliance and holding military exercises uh, up to the Rio Grande uh, and in the Caribbean, in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, the U.S. would not stand for that. The, the U.S. almost went to a nuclear war over the Soviet Union stationing nuclear weapons in Cuba. Um, and uh, there's no reason to think that if, if, uh, if Ukraine joins NATO, that the, uh, NATO wouldn't uh, encourage the placement of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So uh, there's a reason, you know, an overall reason for Russia to be very uneasy um, and afraid of this growing encirclement on its western flank. But add to that the fact that there was a government in place in Ukraine that had a relatively friendly relationship with uh, Russia as well as with uh, Western Europe um, and was uh, militarily neutral. Um, and there were uh, good trade relations going on and cooperation. Um, and there was a coup. There was a violent coup that overthrew the president um, in February of 2014. Um, and Viktor Yukonovich was, was uh, ousted and replaced by an interim president and then the election of Petro Petroshenko, um, who was a guy who uh, promoted uh, ultranationalism, 
extreme nationalism in the country and um, the organizations that uh, trace their, uh, their political lineage back to World War II when a sizable section of Ukraine supported the Nazis in their war against the Soviet Union. Um, so the, the coup took place in February of 2014. Um, some of these violent right-wing white supremacist paramilitary organizations played a key role uh, in the coup, particularly a group called Right Sector. Um, and uh, the Russian minority in the country um, saw which way the wind was blowing and was extremely, uh, I mean, uncomfortable is just not the word. They were scared that a, a new government had come to power in, in Kiev, the capital of, uh, of Ukraine, that was now um, promoting uh, organizations which were politically allied with the World War II era uh, neo-Nazi organizations that collaborated with the German occupation, that was hostile to the Russian minority, which makes up 17% of Ukraine, um, uh, with some 30% of Ukrainians speaking Russian as a first language. Um, and uh, the Russian minority is concentrated in the eastern and southern parts of, uh, of Ukraine. Um, so what happened? Um, the peninsula of Crimea uh, at the southern uh, part of Ukraine, um, which it was predominantly ethnic Russian, decided to have hold a referendum and uh, voted to be reunited with Russia. And I say reunited because... Crimea was part of Russia for 300 years um, until 1954 when uh, Premier uh, Nikita Khrushchev administratively transferred it to Ukraine um, and uh, just turned it from the Soviet Republic of Russia to the Soviet Republic of Ukraine. Um, and since they both republics were part of the Soviet Union, there wasn't any uh, any great change, um, you know, economically or politically. But with the coup of 2014, Crimea now would be a predominantly Russian area run by an organization hostile both to Russia and to its own Russian minority, banning the use of the Russian language for official business, um, tearing down statues of World War II heroes uh, from the Soviet Union who had helped defeat the Nazis, and replacing them with, uh, with statues honoring neo-Nazi figures from World War II, um, such as the notorious fascist leader named Stefan Bandera, responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people. Um, his birthday is now a national holiday in Ukraine. Uh, there's a stamp in his honor, and there are some seven or eight statues in major cities honoring him. Um, and when the fascists march in Ukraine, um, hundreds of them at a time on his on Bandera's birthday or on other occasions, uh, they carry his picture, um, they carry his uh, red flag, um, and they repeat the slogan that he popularized as a fascist slogan, which is "Glory to Ukraine, Glory to the Heroes," which uh, President Petro Poroshenko uh, adopted as the official slogan of the Ukrainian military. Um, so Crimea uh, separated from, uh, from Ukraine and rejoined Russia. 
um, in the Donbas region, which is a heavily industrialized area in eastern Ukraine, um, uh, leftists in several cities declared independent republics. The Donetsk People's Republic in the city of Donetsk and the Lugansk city, Lugansk People's Republic based in the city of Lugansk. Um, and the Donetsk and Lugansk regions are the uh, make up uh, the Don, the, what is called the Donbass, uh, which as I said is a heavily uh, industrialized area and very important for the economy of Ukraine. So uh, the Ukrainian uh, central government responded in 2014 by launching a war against uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, and that war has continued uh, to the present day. Um, and before the Russian invasion on February 24th of this year, some 14 to 15,000 people had lost their lives. Um, and in a sense, the present war is, a, is more of a continuation of that war that began in 2014, that it is a new, uh, a new war entirely unto itself. Um, there was also fighting in 2014 in the Black Sea city of Mariupol that was in the news uh, quite a bit earlier this year, uh, when there was tremendous fighting going on there between um, separatists uh, and, uh, and Russian forces um, and um, an organization called the Azov Regiment. Um, Azov is a, uh, is a part of the Ukrainian military that was formerly called the Azov Battalion, which formed back in 2014 to fight a separatist movement in the city of Mariupol. Um, and its founder, um, Alexei uh, Belinsky, uh, a well-known, notorious white supremacist, who in 2010 was quoted as saying, it is the mission of the Ukrainian people, listen to this, it is the mission of the Ukrainian people to unite the white races in a crusade against the Semites and the subhumans, using the German word, for subhuman that was popularized uh, by the Nazi regime. A crusade of the white races against the Jews and the subhuman races. Wow. That was the founder of the Azov Battalion. Um, he only stopped being the leader um, when he was elected to the national parliament, the Rada. Um, and we're told uh, there was a lot of, there were a lot of news stories about all of these developments before the Russian invasion. Um, because uh, the Western countries were worried about the influence of these fascist organizations. Ukraine is not a fascist government, but it's a government that tolerates and works with uh, actual fascist organizations. Um, I, I don't have to just rely on uh, news accounts and historical accounts to understand this. I ran into the Azov Battalion myself back in 2016. Um, one of the things that happened after the 2014 coup was um, tension and conflict in the Black Sea city of Odessa, where the pop majority of the population um, was Ukrainian, but uh, almost 90% of the people spoke Russian as a first language. Um, and uh, Odessa has traditionally been a country with a lot of Russian tradition. It was started as a city by Catherine the Great in the late 1700s, it's actually a little younger than the city of Richmond. Um, we think of these cities as being ancient, but uh, that's not true for Odessa. 
And Odessa was a, a fairly multiracial country, uh, city, uh, cosmopolitan, um, always had a little more, more of a libertarian uh, current in it than, than some of the other more conservative cities. Um, and in Odessa, there were people who supported the coup. They were in a minority, and the majority who were opposed to the coup, the right-wing coup of 2014. Um, and on May 2nd, 2014, there was a clash um, between these two forces. And uh, on this particular day, there was a huge uh, crowd of soccer fans in the city for a big soccer match. And in Ukraine, like in many uh, European uh, countries, the soccer fans have a tradition of violence, um, both against the fans of opposing teams and also against anyone they consider to be liberals or progressives. Um, it's a fairly right-wing movement. Um, and so on this particular day, there were thousands of right-wing soccer fans in the city, um, and under the leadership of some of these neo-Nazi organizations, they attacked a group of people who were petitioning for the right to elect their own provincial governor uh, instead of having the governor appointed by the central government, which was the situation um, in Ukraine it is today. Uh, in the U.S., of course, we elect our state governors. They don't have that right in Ukraine. So in order not to be dominated by a governor appointed by this new right-wing anti-Russian government, people were petitioning uh, to, for the right to uh, elect their own local governor. Um, the mob attacked and chased uh, a couple of hundred uh, of these people working on this petition campaign into a five-story building called the House of Trade Unions, um, owned by, it was a big building owned by, by unions, um, in a big uh, public square called Kulikubo Pole, Kulikubo Square. Um, they chased them inside. They surrounded the building. They cut off the water. They cut off the electricity. They started throwing Molotov cocktails through the windows. They set the house on fire, and at least 42 people died from being burnt alive in the flames or smoke inhalation or jumping from the third or fourth story uh, windows and then being beaten to death as they hit the sidewalk. And if you Google May 2, 2014, Odessa, you'll come across many, many cell phone videos uh, of this massacre showing the faces of the people committing the murders. But to this day, to this day, there has never been a real investigation into what happened on that day and who was responsible for it. And no one has been punished for uh, their participation in this massacre. That was what is known as the Odessa massacre. And immediately, uh, people from Odessa started coming out to the site of the massacre and laying flowers and holding ceremonies and memorials, um, and a big one on the first anniversary. And they were planning a big one on the second anniversary, May 2nd, 2016. But there was a huge mobilization in the country of right-wing forces announcing they were going to come to Odessa and repeat the massacre of May 2, 2014. So an organization called the Council of Mothers of May 2, made up of uh, families who, were, uh, who had relatives, mostly sons and daughters, who were uh, murdered in the massacre, um, they put out a call for international observers to come to uh, Odessa. And uh, at the time, we were working, uh, the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice, and Equality 
was working with a U.S. anti-war coalition called the United National Anti-War Coalition. And um, that's how we learned about this situation in Odessa. And we volunteered to go to Odessa and stand with the people there on the idea that perhaps if people from the U.S. were there, the Ukrainian government would hold the fascists back because they could get away with uh, another massacre if it were only uh, of Ukrainians. Um, but if Americans were killed, um, then they would get more attention and more publicity. So we did go. And um, when we, uh, we met uh, representatives of the Council of Mothers and they brought us to uh, our hotel where we were going to stay, um, there was a group of, um, of soldiers out in front. And I asked who they were, and they said, well, that's the Azov Battalion. I said, well, what are they doing here? Because we had heard that this right-wing group was setting up blockades on the roads leading into Odessa, trying to stop anyone who might be coming in for the memorial. Um, and they said, well, they're just here to keep an eye on us. And I went, whoa. So that night we went to dinner um, with the Council of Mothers, and then we got into a bus, and we headed to Kulikovo Square for the memorial. Things were very tense. Um, we got to an intersection, and the bus stopped. I looked to the right outside the bus, and there was a big crowd of uh, young people, some of them in military uh, garb, not exactly uniforms, but uh, camouflage clothing and so on. And all of a sudden, they were staring at the bus, which was filled mainly with elderly parents of people who were killed in the massacre, and they started yelling at us and throwing stones and throwing the Hitler salute, you know, the stiff-armed Hitler salute. That was the Azov Battalion. And then we ran into them again at the memorial, um, and they came, and they were laughing and snickering and so on. And then either they or the right sector had a march through the memorial. But fortunately, some three, 4,000 people came out for the memorial, and that plus uh, a big, heavy police and military presence, which I believe was because uh, they were worried about um, uh, international observers being killed at the event. Um, and the day came off um, well without any violence. Um, the next day, I was asked by the Council of Mothers to go to Brussels in Belgium and testify at a uh, subcommittee meeting of the European Union um, about uh, what, what I had observed uh, in uh, Odessa um, on that day, on May 2nd. And then... Um, when we came back to the uh, the U.S. and the other people were Bruce Gagnon, uh, the coordinator of the Global Network against uh, weapons and nuclear uh, uh, nuclear power and weapons in space, and a man named Regis Tremblay, who is an independent videographer and works closely with Bruce, and the three of us went out. When we came back, um, the defenders formed the Odessa Solidarity Committee, um, which uh, for the last six years has been trying to keep the story of the Odessa massacre alive, particularly by encouraging uh, actions um, on May 2nd to remember the massacre, to demand an international investigation, as the Council of Mothers has asked for, and now to try to explain to people that, yes, uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, there's no question about that, but that it was anything but an unprovoked action that it was the culmination of, uh, of eight years of war in the Donbass area. Uh, the stated goals of the, of the Russian Federation was demilitarization of Ukraine, 
in other words, breaking it down its military, denazification of the government, driving these neo-Nazi groups out of the government, and defense of the Donbass region. Now, you can agree with that or you can disagree with it, um, but uh, the fact of the matter is Russia, I believe, legitimately believed it was in an existential, uh, a state of existential threat that um, if things had kept going forward the way they were going, uh, Ukraine would have joined NATO. There would have been a solid block of hostile countries. The war in the Donbass would have continued, and eventually it, it would have exploded uh, in an attack on Russia, either directly or through an increase of sanctions uh, designed to weaken the Russian Federation and bring about a change of government. And they weren't going to accept an invasion. They weren't going to accept uh, a so-called color revolution um, to overthrow their government. And so they intervened in Ukraine. Um, that's our understanding of what happened. Um, uh, trying to explain that, um, that the Russian intervention was not unprovoked, that it was the steady uh, uh, advancement uh, and encirclement of Russia by NATO and um, I, I really haven't gone into the U.S. support for the, uh, the right-wing coup of 2014, but um, Under Secretary of State for Eastern European Affairs, Victoria Nuland, openly bragged after the coup that the U.S. spent $5 billion promoting, quote, civic organizations, by which is, in reality, our organization designed to undermine uh, a government the U.S. would like to undermine. Um, and the George Soros Foundation uh, also uh, bragged about spending $5 billion since before the collapse of the Soviet Union to develop these networks of, of neoliberal, uh, pro-capitalist, uh, civic organizations designed to, uh, to undermine uh, a government that the U.S. considered uh, hostile. Um, so... Um, I'm not sure what more I can I can add uh, at this point, other than um, the fact that uh, in the course of the last few months, um, some information has come out that helps to show a little light on the reality of uh, of Ukrainian society, um, and that has to do with the fact that uh, one quarter of the population of Ukraine, which is some 41 million people, have been displaced as a result of the current war. Um, but when African students who are going to school in Kiev um, tried to leave the capital city and travel to Poland or Hungary or Romania to get away from the war, um, they were stopped and they were not allowed uh, uh, either onto buses or if they're able to get to the border on their own, they were not allowed to cross over into these other countries. Um, they were singled out simply because they were African. Um, and that is, that uh, has, you know, has to be seen against a, a whole backdrop of the xenophobia and racism that has been prevalent in Ukraine, particularly since uh, the coup of 2014. Um, but, but in a broader sense, the fact that there has always been a current in Ukraine that, whose version of nationalism, and I'm not saying that this is true of all Ukrainians by any means, but there's always been a strong current that viewed nationalism 
not as just promoting its own country, but as opposing Russians on the east and Poles on the west um, and uh, darker-skinned people um, of any race. Um, and since the coup has been particularly anti-Russian and has uh, allowed these fascist organizations free reign on the, on the streets to uh, break up uh, any sort of progressive protest or demonstration, um, a particularly remembrance of uh, the events of World War II and the role that the Soviet Union had played in driving the Nazis out of Ukraine. So the Russian population tends to uh, look favorably back on that history and the role of the Soviet Union because um, they were targeted by the Nazi occupation and significant sections of the Ukrainian population, not all by any means, but significant sections uh, uh, look back with hostility towards the Soviet intervention and with sympathy for the forces of Stefan Bandera and other neo-Nazi groups who blocked with the, uh, the German occupation. So I know that's a very different narrative than uh, people have been receiving. Uh, I understand um, why folks uh, may be sympathetic to Ukraine. We've been uh, inundated with story after story after story after story of suffering um, in a way that we don't hear about the plight of, of Palestinians or uh, Ethiopians or Afghanis or people in the, the, the worst humanitarian situation in the entire world, which is in Yemen. Uh, we don't hear those kind of stories, and we're not sensitized to the suffering there. But uh, we do hear it 24-7 uh, uh, about the situation in Ukraine. And I understand why people instinctively would be sympathetic and, and want to help um, in some ways. But uh, we, we would caution folks if they're at the point where they want to make some kind of financial donation, investigate who you're giving your money to and make sure that it's not going to any of these fascist organizations, which are fighting either within or side by side with the Ukrainian military against uh, Russian forces, but are in fact neo-Nazi white supremacist groups. Um, it's the reality. It used to be talked about in the Western press before the, the 2014 coup. Now they try to cover it up, but um, it's it's the reality. And if you poke far enough, um, you can determine it for yourself. So I'm going to stop there and and see if you 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 want to uh, you know add uh, information or ask questions or make comments or uh, I don't know if you're opening this up to your listeners, but um, that's kind of you know, general overview. What we're going to do here? We're going to take a revolutionary culture break and when we come back we're going to open our lines up to our listening audience for any questions or comments they'd like to sh um, share with you and they can do that by calling 323-679-0841 we'll be back with a continuation discussion on Ukraine with Brother Phil this is Africa on the Moon Why?
with Theo Walito. He's given his perspective on the current reality of Ukraine, what is going on. And he's just given us a mouthful to digest and to try to better understand this present situation. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to take any phone calls or comments by calling 323-679-0841, call in, and we will hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. But right now, Phil, we can go to some of our political panelists analysts. Uh, they may have a comment or question to raise with you. We'll go right now to our first panelist and bring in Brother Haki. And Brother Haki, what is your question or comment? Yeah, my question is, is this. And uh, your guests alluded to some of the some of my concerns, but more specifically, let me let me just put it to you this way. Now, in terms of the U.S. end game, I'm very much concerned in terms of the U.S. end game. Now, one of the things that historically America was very successful in terms of coercing the U.S. the former USSR uh, to spend militarily, which greatly weakened its economy, which uh, facilitated Yeltsin and Gorbachev uh, participation in discussions around changes to the economic systems in the USSR. Uh, now, the thing is that, you know, that, that strategy, of course, would not work now. Uh, the Russians uh, made that mistake once, and that won't happen again. So this question in terms of U.S. end games come very, 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 very uh, important in terms of addressing. Now, some people take a position that, you know, the U.S. end game is really reflect, is, is a function of, you know, um, um, <clears throat> creating global economic instability. In other words, to consider the decline of capitalism is very useful in terms of, you know, engaging in war. Some people take a position uh, is all about 
creating supply chain disruptions and creating the supply chain disruptions. Uh, you solidify the control of multinationals, which is precisely what the decline of capitalist economy would want to see put in place. Last, that people would take a position that perhaps that engaging this role has a lot to do in terms of profits for oil companies, which is indisputable, even though we understand the function of inflation in terms of the economy as a result of these, you know, of, you know, of, uh, you know these, uh, of, you know, of raising oil costs. But my question to you, brother, is um, what is your view in terms of U.S. endgame? How do you see all this playing out? Well, it, it, you're, you know, I'm with you. You've got to go back to the question of capitalism. Um, capitalism is not a stable economic system. It's a system that has to constantly expand in order to stay alive. If it doesn't expand, it dies. Um, and that has to do with basically, you know, the accumulation of capital, which has to be invested someplace, um, along with the competition be- between the various capitalist countries. So, the view of the United States uh, ruling class is that um, it's not possible to live in uh, uh, any kind of harmony uh, with other countries, that the world is a dangerous place and the United States must be dominant. Um, and it's dominant primarily uh, through its military power, um, which is uh, you know, far greater than in not only any other single country in the world, but um, the largest uh, six or seven, uh, I'm sorry, seven or eight militaries. I've seen it described different ways. But um, you take the largest six, uh, seven or eight militaries in the world, and that barely equals uh, the military expenditure of the United States alone. Um, so what is the end game? The end game is to, uh, well, uh, to use their own phraseology, a full spectrum dominance, uh, a real academic sounding term, which basically means the U.S. controlling the world. Um, we've all heard the phrase cops of the world, but uh, it's more specific than that, that the U.S. must dominate the world economically, um, politically, uh, and militarily. Um, and uh, in terms of Russia, although Russia is far weaker than the United States, it's a uh, its uh, total uh, annual military expenditures is 11% of that of the U.S. Um, and 8% of that of all the NATO countries. Um, still, uh, it's a country with vast natural resources, uh, a big domestic market, um, potential uh, low-wage workforce. Um, and the U.S. views it as an economic competitor and wants to reduce it to an economic neo-colony. Uh, the relationship it wants with Russia is the same relationship it has with most African countries, which is to extract raw material and sell back manufactured goods to a captive market. And uh, where possible to use um, uh, low-wage labor in the countries. Um, it was interesting. Um, Brother Lee mentioned that, you know, I've done some traveling in Europe. Um, up until a few years ago, I really had not done that much international traveling. But um, uh, I was asked to represent the United National Anti-War Coalition at several uh, anti-war conferences in Europe and got an opportunity to travel from Ireland uh, to Ukraine, from Denmark to Austria. Um, and 
when traveling through Poland and Hungary by train, I was struck at the number of factories um, in the countryside that seemed to have been abandoned. Uh, buildings that, you know, with windows broken and vines grown over, and it was like there had been some sort of an economic, uh, you know, depression. Um, and maybe all these businesses had just gone out of, uh, out of business. Um, but then, you know, our friends in Poland and Hungary explained to us that, no, after the collapse of, of the Soviet uh, Union, um, these formerly socialist countries, uh, in order to survive, felt they had to form uh, economic relationships with the West, where the money was, and, and in order to get uh, loans from the International Monetary Fund, they were required to restructure their economies, including dismantling their manufacturing sector. They had to shut down their own factories. And uh, the city of Budapest, the capital of Hungary, used to have five very large uh, industrial enterprises. And when I was there in 2019, it was down to one. And uh, it was explained to us that there were many uh, towns and cities in the countryside that used to have one major employer, um, uh, a factory, and had been shut down to comply with the IMF demands. Um, and as a result, uh, people had no work. Um, and, and, and so they're, they're you know, increasingly uh, dependent on uh, whatever loans they can get from the West just in order to be able to, you know, function as a government and provide some services to the people. And that's the end game of the United States for Russia. Um, and Russia's uh, leadership is well aware of that. And, um, you know, I don't have to go into a big thing about this. We don't, you know, we're not endorsing the Russian invasion. And um, I, I have plenty of criticisms of the Russian leadership. But the point is that the present war was provoked by the U.S. and by NATO and that it's basically a defensive war on Russia's part. And I think we can make, you know, I think I have made that argument, whether people agree with it or not, at least it's a different point of view um, that, that people have been presented up till now. Any follow-up, caller? No, I'm good, bro. Okay, let's go to our next panelist, Sister Eleanor. The mic is yours. Good evening, and thank you to our guests and listeners. Um, I um, grew up during the Russian, uh, the Soviet Union, um, uh, U.S. Cold War, and it was my understanding that NATO was established to protect the U.S. from the Soviet Union. And though I don't endorse the inherent uh, invasion. I recently saw um, Blinken, uh, Secretary of State, on the Dave Corbett show discussing how uh, the U.S. government had uh, months ahead of the invasion discussed with President Zelensky uh, what the plans were and that we had provided anti-tank and anti-aircraft uh, weaponry. Is there any truth to that? And thank you this evening. I share many of your views and uh, through some research have been 
sharing them with others and that the Ukraine was undermining democratic elections and ignoring the demands of its its citizens. Yeah, well, the United States has been... um, I'm sorry, were you you finished? My question was, you know, the Dave Colbert is a late-night show on ABC or NBC, and um, Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State, was on the show a few weeks ago, and he was telling the audience how we had informed the, the Ukraine, President Zelensky, of the Russian plans. Moreover, he was suggesting that we, the U.S., and uh, had somehow provided through um, other nations like Poland um, anti-tank, anti-aircraft uh, weaponry before the invasion. Is that just U.S. propaganda, or is there any truth to that? Do you have any way of knowing, please? Well, it's no secret that the U.S. has been uh, giving Ukraine tremendous amount of uh, military support, um, both before the invasion and um, and since. I mean, just a few months ago, uh, a few months ago, last month, um, uh, President Biden announced that he wanted to give uh, Ukraine $33 billion more in military aid, and Congress upped that to $40 billion, and that was on top of the tens of billions that they had already given. Now, you know, this, this, this uh, wow, $40 billion, they just snapped their fingers and, yeah, we got $40 billion we can send them. Where does that money come from? At a time when, you know, they can't, they can't guarantee that, that mothers and fathers can't provide baby formula for their children, that they're, you know, they're cutting back um, uh, uh, support for people facing evictions, that, you know, we're, we're heading into a recession but somehow they can come up with $40 billion for Ukraine. So, no, it's not just um, – uh, it, it's, it's, they definitely were providing um, uh, military uh, hardware and ammunition to Ukraine before the invasion, and they've greatly increased that uh, today so that for all intents and purposes, um, this is no longer a war between Russia and Ukraine. This is a war between the United States and, and Russia, using Ukraine as a proxy. We're providing the weaponry. We're providing the ammunition. We're providing the military intelligence. And it, anybody who knows anything about the United States government knows they're not going to give that kind of money to another country without telling them how to use it. So, you know, they're, 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 all, they're most certainly in charge of the strategy. And this strategy is, um, I think the strategy is to prolong this war as long as possible and try to force Russia to use up its its uh, resources fighting the war um, and leading to a collapse of the economy and uh, pro- what they hope will be uh, the Russian people turning against this leadership and uh, throwing them out and coming up with a, a government that's more palatable to the U.S. 
Um, but yeah, they definitely have been supporting the, the Ukrainian military for a very long time. I mean, they hold military exercises with the uh, Ukrainian uh, Army, uh, Air Force, and Navy several times every year for, for years now. They, they hold military exercises in the Black Sea that, that Ukraine shares with Russia. Um, and those military exercises include boarding ships. Why are they, why are they practicing boarding ships? Um, what, what, <laughs> what is the United States doing in the Black Sea? Um, you know, th- we're, we're no longer a country. We haven't been a country for a long time. We're an empire. We're an empire with military bases in, in, uh, in 70 countries, some 800 military bases. We, 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 and and it, we don't, it's not even just that we fund our own military. The United States sells one-third of all the military equipment and hardware and ammunitions that is bought and sold in the entire world. 4% of the, of the population sells 30% of all the military weaponry that fuels all the wars around the world. And it, it not only puts a lot of money into uh, the defense industry coffers, the military industry coffers, but it also keeps countries fighting against each other um, which keeps them weak and unable to unite against, you know, what should be viewed as a common enemy. So, yeah, I, I guess that's a long answer to a short question. Yes, the U.S. has been providing weaponry to uh, Ukraine for a long time. Thank you, Phil. We're going to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, the mic is yours. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Phil, for your uh, presentation uh, is very informative. I want to focus a moment on um, on uh, a bit of history that you mentioned. You mentioned that uh, that there was a heavy Nazi presence in the Ukraine during World War II, and I'm curious as to how what is the relationship between them and the Zionist movement. I'd read in some cases that uh, that Israel heavily supports the present government of the Ukraine. And uh, I was curious as to what that historical relationship was. And uh, part of the reason for that is I'd read someplace that... Um, that uh that the only uh trade relations that Nazi Germany had was with uh occupied uh uh Palestine during World War Two. So I was wondering if you could uh address a little of that history of the relationship between those yeah. two forces. Well it's 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 definitely complicated. Um Ukrainian fascism, um, okay, backing off just for a little bit. Yes, during World War II, uh, the German military invaded Ukraine, um, imposed an occupation. And there were elements of the Ukrainian population who thought that if they blocked with the, remember, and and Ukraine had been part of the Soviet Union was a socialist republic of Ukraine. And 
some right-wing elements in the in the Ukrainian population wanted their own country, independent, and felt that blocking with the Nazis put them in good graces with the Nazis, and if the Nazis won the war, they would allow Ukraine to have its own country. So um, this was... Um, the Ukrainian nationalist movement began late in Europe. It was one of the last countries to really try to become a country because it always had been occupied by its neighbors, Lithuania, Poland, Russia. Before that, the Mongols, the Vikings, everybody took a turn because it's a very flat country with no natural borders. Um, so it was the last country in Europe to really emerge as an independent country, which really didn't happen um, as a fully independent country until the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the nationalist movement began in the 1800s, and it had this particular characteristic. Unlike the progressive nationalism of of African countries or the Palestinian people or the Nicaraguans or Cubans and so on, Ukrainian nationalism was always based on opposition to other peoples, opposition to Russians who had occupied the country under the Tsar, opposition to the Poles who had taken over, you know, uh, secular areas of, of, uh, of Ukrainian territory. The name Ukraine itself can be interpreted in, in several ways, but one of them is borderland. In other words, not country, borderland between other countries. So Ukrainian nationalism always had this xenophobic, um, anti-Russian, anti-Polish uh, strain in it, and um, and some of that developed in a particularly ugly, uh, racist way um, that we refer to as ultranationalism. So back in the 1920s, there was an organization formed called the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN, um, and they were uh, promoting, you know, an independent uh, Ukrainian state. Um, and that, of course, was the time when when Ukraine was a socialist republic of the Soviet Union. So it was, you know, fundamentally anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-progressive. There was a split in the organization, and the more militant section was led by this man named Stefan Bandera. So he he had an actual, you know, paramilitary organization, and they carried out a tremendous massacre in western Ukraine against Poles uh, and murdered. uh, I've seen, you know, figures between 50 and 100,000, but certainly several tens of thousands of Poles, mainly women and children and the elderly, were massacred in the most hideous ways by the Bandera forces. Um, And the Bandera forces blocked with the Nazis um, and and cooperated with them in massacres of Jews and Soviet prisoners of war and and Poles and others. Um, But eventually the Nazis, you know, understood that Bandera, what he really wanted was an independent Ukraine, and they weren't interested in that at all. They were interested in the greater Germany. So they actually arrested um, Bandera and put him in prison in, in Berlin for the rest of the war. Uh, towards the end of the war, they let him back out and turned them loose on the Soviet uh, military, which was making serious gains um, in, into Ukraine. Um, and the Bandera forces actually fought well into the 50s uh, against the Soviet Union, guerrilla warfare. Um but uh, the, the, you know, and as I said before, Bandera is now viewed as a national hero in Ukraine. He, his primary um, target was not Jews. Um, and he at times carried out pogroms against Jews, 
uh, most likely to please uh, Ukrainian, uh, you know, the Ukrainian uh, uh, fascist, I'm sorry, to please the uh, Nazi fascists. But um, more likely, uh, more often, his uh, actions were were aimed at um, at Poles and, and Russians. He actually recruited some Jew, Jewish people into uh, his organization um, uh, at the same time that other times he persecuted. So anti-Semitism was not um, a huge uh, part of Ukrainian uh, fascist ideology as it was uh, with the Nazis. Um, the present uh, president of, of Ukraine, uh, Zelensky, um, Volodymyr Zelensky is uh, Jewish, and his primary backer, and you know, he's not just some, you know, he's got a background as an entertainer, a comedian, but he's not just some, you know, uh, simple comedian who wound up becoming popular and president. He was backed by a very rich and powerful oligarch um, who owned the uh, television station that funded him. Um, and that man is also Jewish uh, and also is a, is a very strong supporter of Israel. Um, Israel has supported the Ukrainian government. And uh, it is a contradiction, yes. Um, but it's, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. And um, anti-Semitism has not been, you know, the predominant trait in Ukrainian fascism. And Zelensky's Jewishness was not a factor in the uh, in the uh, uh, presidential election that he won um, a few years ago to become president, so um, fascism, you know, is is a, is a social movement of the uh, of the ruined middle class who um, are backed by elements of the ruling class to turn them against what they fear will be an uprising of the working class. Um, uh, that's kind of a formula formulistic uh, description of it, but um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to focus on Jewish people. Um, that was that was uh, Hitler's um, tactic in order to divert people, um, you know, from the anger at the uh, at the, the wealthy Germans that were the powerful wealthy Germans who were backing him, as opposed to the communist movement, which was quite strong in pre World War II Germany. So. Um, yeah, it, it seems strange to us that Israel, um, which purports to be defender of the Jewish people, would block with a government that tolerates openly uh, anti-Semitic organizations. But then again, um, you know, the, the, the moral compass of Israel, uh, if it ever existed, has been gone for a long time. And you only have to look to see how they, they actually treat the Palestinian people to understand that. Um, so, yeah. Um, it's complicated, but that's as well as I can explain it. Okay, let's move to Brother Maurice. The mic is yours. Brother Maurice. Good evening and revolutionary uh, greetings, uh, Phil. Good to hear your voice. Uh, appreciate all the work uh, that you and the defenders do for not only uh, the city of Richmond, but for, our, for the masses of people. And also um, I appreciated uh, your presentation tonight. Um, my my uh, question or concern is in regard to immigration. Uh, when it comes to Ukraine, back in March, if we if we can recall, the United States had put out a plan to accept, I guess, approximately 100,000 uh, what they call Ukrainian refugees uh, fleeing, the, you know, the war over there. 
in, in, in relation, uh, when we talk about last week, uh, you know, the um, summit of the Americas, Biden also uh, developed a a not, or presented uh, another migration plan, um, and, and, and you know, in, in connection with all of the the Caribbean countries. Um, so my question, in all in regards to all this, and what we're seeing also with in, in the UK with the their migration plan of sending Africans who you know who uh, was leaving Libya, leaving the continent on boats, dying by the thousands in the war, you know, in 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 in, in, the, in the waters of the continent. They're they're shipping them back to you know Rwanda, creating um, more or increasing more uh, what they call xen, you know xenophobia. So my 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 question to you, uh, Phil, is what is the connection, or what 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 is the connection in, in regards to immigration when we look at Ukraine, the immigration that's going on in the United Kingdom, and also you know the immigration that the immigration plan anyhow that Biden presented last week at the Summit of the Americas, and also when we talk about Haiti, uh, what we've seen. Um, earlier this year, from you know, with Texas, with down there in Texas, when they had these you know bull whoops and looked like something right out of the 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 seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds, if if you will. Um, what what is your what is your take in relation and the connection of all of the, all of this in regard to the migration plans? Yeah, well, it's. That's one of the things that's you know I hate to use the word interesting because it sounds like you know you're you're standing off to the side just watching it, um, and we really you know need to be directly involved. Um, but it's it's interesting in that um, all this is taking place against the background of one of the greatest refugee crises the world has ever seen. Why are so many people from the Middle East and North Africa trying to get into Europe? Why are so many people from Central America and South America trying to get into the United States? It all can be traced back to U.S. wars. Look, look, at, look at Central America. You, you know, um, folks who are old enough to have been around in the 70s uh, and 80s would remember that the United States was deeply involved in uh, – trying to suppress uh, leftist guerrilla movements in Nicaragua, in Guatemala, um, in El Salvador, um, and were also involved in um, trying to suppress democratic movements in Honduras. Um, and they uh, they supported, you know, right-wing death squads. Um, after the Sandinistas came to power in Nicaragua, they supported the Contra uh, uh, army um, that you know formed in in uh, of, of, uh, of Nicaraguan uh, self exiles in Miami and then you know uh, invaded back into to Nicaragua um, and those countries were torn with war with repression with the most hideous types of massacres um, and they are still paying the price for that years later with the development of these murderous drug gangs, which grew out of um, uh, both the extreme poverty and the right-wing death squads um, that were promoted by the U.S. And so those countries are in, in, in social turmoil, uh, the poverty, the violence, the corruption. 
and, and people just can't, they can't survive. So they come to where the money is. They come north to the U.S. Um, the same thing if you look at the Middle East. Um, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, yes, there was conflict in the Middle East. There was conflict of uh, the Palestinians trying to regain their land from, from the Zionist occupation. Um, I know that's a loaded political word, but that's the correct terminology. Israel is a racist, colonial, apartheid state built on Palestinian land. Um, and as long as uh, they, they attempt to uh, maintain themselves as a racially exclusive state, there will never be peace in the Middle East. But since the collapse of the Soviet Union, remember that was 1991. What's the first thing that happened after the Soviet Union collapsed? Soviet Union supported certain countries in the Middle East, Iraq, um, Lebanon, Syria. The United States supported certain countries in the Middle East, uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Jordan. What's the first thing that happened after the Soviet Union collapsed? The U.S. attacked Iraq. Why? Because Iraq uh, intervened in Kuwait? No, because the Soviet Union collapsed and all of a sudden the opposing force was gone. The U.S. won the Cold War. It was time to catch up the goodies to go into Iraq and take their oil. That was the whole purpose of it. And then they didn't complete the job in 91, so they went back in 2003, claiming that Iraq had something to do with 9-11, something to do with uh, relationships with al-Qaeda, something to do with trying to develop nuclear weapons, all of which turned out to be bold-faced lies. But they went in and took over the country, hoping to control the, the oil, because oil is the most valuable quantity in the entire world because you can't run a modern industrial society without it. So uh, the, the, the Iraq War, uh, and then the, the U.S. Uh, invasion of Afghanistan, the U.S. Uh, support for uh, this right-wing movement in Syria to overthrow the, uh, the uh, Syrian government because the Syrian government wouldn't recognize the United States as the you know, undisputed leader of the world. Um, all of these conflicts in Yemen, you know, uh, led by the, uh, Saudi Arabia, but totally supported by the U.S., all of these conflicts have produced such waves of, of immigrants. Um, and, and what happens? They, 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 uh, people, uh, after the U.S. and NATO destroyed Libya um, and, these, uh, and these right-wing extremist groups um, set up camp in Libya and then from there moved into Mali and moved into Cameroon and moved into Burkina Faso, and, and that plus global warming, and, and, and the difficulties in growing food uh, produced a, a wave of immigrants from Western Africa. And, and some of them tried to cross up through Libya, and they were captured by the extremist groups and sold on auction blocks as slaves in Libya uh, as a result of the U.S.-NATO war on that country. And the ones that, that, that could get through, they get into boats and they try to cross the Mediterranean. And when they get there, they're, they're, they're basically captured and, and put in detention camps. Um, what's happening in, in England now is that there's been you know, people trying to cross over from France across the English Channel. They get to England and, and they say they want to apply for refugee status, which is recognized under international law. England's freaking out because they don't want all these dark-skinned people, you know, coming into the country, which is already becoming multicultural. So what do they do? They say, we're going to send you to another country. Now, what's a good country we can send it to? A, a good country that is, that is wealthy, peaceful, 
that can afford to take in thousands and thousands of refugees? No, let's pick a, pick a country that would scare the heck out of them so that if they think they're going to get sent there, they won't come to England. Let's pick Rwanda. Now, Rwanda is an extremely poor country, and it's, it's, it's in conflict with neighboring Congo. They've just closed the border between the two countries, but England gave Rwanda some money for its economic development purposes on the condition that they would take these refugees who, who would have to stay in Rwanda. It's not all, it, their solution to people trying to get to England, which was the center of another empire, and so it has a lot of money, is to try to threaten them with being sent to a place they don't want to go. The same thing that the United States did when it was trying to stop immigration coming into the United States. Send the people back to these squalid refugee camps on the, on the Mexican side of the border to make it so miserable and so horrible that they'll tell the people back home, don't come. That happened under Trump, a Republican, and it happens uh, now under Biden, a Democrat. They all have the same view. Make life as miserable as possible. But what happens in the Ukraine war? It's not only the fact that Ukrainians are white. They don't have any problem oppressing white people when it's, when it's in their interest. Just look at the Irish Republican movement and what the British did to, to Irish people and the Irish Republican Army and Bobby Sands and, and that 800-year struggle. They don't have a problem oppressing white people. But in order to get the, the sympathy of the rest of Europe and North America, they played up the plight of the Ukrainians who were, you know, were, were leg legitimately trying to get away from the war zone, and they opened their doors. They opened their Poland, Poland, which is run by the, the Justice and Law Party, which came to power a few years ago president, under President Duda, primarily by promoting xenophobia against immigrants. And the President Orban of Hungary, who's opened his doors to Ukrainian uh, refugees, just about two, three years ago, made a statement that we have to stop immigration because we have to keep Hungary a white country. He said that openly. But now they open these doors to these refugees. Uh, it, it, and the reason is because they want to play on the heartstrings of people who they would never think of trying to sensitize to the to the suffering of Palestinians and Yemenis and Ethiopians um, and, and Afghanis, but they want us to feel sorry for Ukrainians so that we will support the war effort and send another $40 billion to Ukraine at a time where we can't afford to produce baby formula. So again, a long answer to a simple question, but putting it into the context of the world crisis of, of refugees and migration and, and the, the root causes of migration, which is the U.S. wars in the Middle East, North Africa, and the Central America. Um, and then you plop into that this current crisis in Ukraine, and it brings a lot of these things into sharp focus. Thank you, Phil. We'll move next to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Greetings, everyone. Um, I find the um, situation in Ukraine to be a horrible situation. Um, uh, I think that's, I mean, I, I compare the, the fascism of the Shakhtar and the invasion of Iraq with the same uh, mentality that with, with um, 
the invasion of Ukraine, uh, although I recognize that Putin's got his, his paranoia or whatever, his, his, his concerns about um, encroachment. Uh, I, I have a book um, by Joseph B. Stalin, um, Marxism and the National Colonial Question, and it covers um, the Ukraine and uh, the various prison house of nations of the Tsarist Russia, and uh, and goes into the uh, it covers the period into the span of the Soviet Union, and uh, it's clear that the Ukraine is part of part of the historically part of the the Russian people, um, and um, so I. I understand that. Um, uh, I don't know you, if I have any real questions. Uh, um, um, I've, I've listened and I've learned. I've learned from um, what you've been saying, and uh, I appreciate you being on. Thank you. Well, th- thank you for your, your thanks for weighing in. Um, yeah, I. I uh, I'm, I'm doing more and more research now because I want to m- write more about, you know, the history of Ukraine. Um, and it's fascinating. It's an absolutely fascinating history um, for many reasons. Um, and you could make the argument that Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Russians are basically one people. Um, I don't know if that's um, such a good argument that they should all be one country now that's a political question but ethnically you know this all goes back um more than a thousand years to the uh to the uh, kevin uh, kevin Rus uh, uh empire um which at the time was the largest and most prosperous um political formation in all of europe um and uh there was a heavy viking influence Vikings who had come down and as as traders and uh, uh, and wound up uh, in key positions um, in the government um, in Kevin Roos and Kevin Roos was the center of a regional empire that includes what today uh, is Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, um, and then it split off in, into those three uh, political entities. Although, as I said. Uh, Ukraine was basically dominated uh, by other countries, and uh, up until World War One, by Tsarist Russia. After the Russian Revolution, it, it was uh, the Bolsheviks created the uh, Soviet Republic of Ukraine, um, and um, in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Ukrainian people voted uh, to be independent, and that was the first time in history that Ukraine was actually an independent country. Just uh, what, uh, 31 years ago. So um, on the national question, um, I'm no fan of Stalin, but um, he was Georgian. He was not white, he was not a dominant European Russian. He was a member of an oppressed minority. And there were some 100 uh, national groupings in the Tsarist Empire, which is why, as you say, it was referred to as the prison house of nations. And he did write a great deal about the national question. I think he had kind of a formulistic um, description of what constitutes a nation. 
in terms of it had to have a common landmass, a common language, a common economy, a common culture, and a common history. Um, and uh, that, you know, it, it cannot be mechanically applied to all circumstances. Um, my view is that black people in the United States constitute an oppressed nation, a nation within a nation, even though it doesn't have a land base. Um, Puerto Rican people uh, in the United States are an oppressed nation, even though they don't have a land base. Indigenous people would be an oppressed nation within the United States, even if they didn't have some, uh, you know, modest land base in terms of the reservations. So, um, but in terms of, you know, relationships between uh, Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, um, and others, the question to ask is who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed? Um, is this a national question? Is this a question of Russia oppressing Ukrainians as a race of people? Um, I would say no, because Ukrainians is made up of both ethnic Russians and ethnic Ukrainians, as well as, you know, several others, uh, Roma people, Jewish people, Poles, uh, and so on. Um, I don't think it's a question of national oppression, um, but uh, it, it, in terms, you know, and, I, and again, you, I'm not endorsing the Russian invasion. I, I think you can make an argument that it was a strategic and tactical mistake. The question is, was it politically wrong? Was it, polit was it morally wrong? Well, when your back's up against the wall, um, sometimes you don't have many options. And they put a bear up against the wall and prodded it with sticks for years and years and years, threw stones at it, started fires around its cave, and eventually it reacted. And um, you know, nobody wants to see a war, and this one is a rough one. I wouldn't believe anything the Ukrainian military tells you that Russian troops are doing. Um, I would believe that a lot of atrocities have been committed by the Azov Battalion because of their pre-war history of atrocities. But, um, you know, no one has to uh, make a strong argument that in war, terrible things happen on all sides. But I, I think that there's a propaganda campaign going on to make the Russian troops appear to be subhuman. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, the Ukrainians are promoting calling them orcs, you know, named from the uh, Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. <laughs> um, you know, it's like the old Huns or, you know, the, the various racial epithets they had for the Vietnamese people. Um, but I, I, I don't think the, the national question is, is in the center of this struggle. I don't think Ukraine is an oppressed uh, people, an oppressed nation, um, and therefore should be supported. Um, I think that uh, Ukraine is, is completely cooperating with an imperialist West, with the U.S., with NATO, and is allowing itself to be used as a proxy army in order to, if not destroy the Russian military, then at least to make Russia uh, spend uh, uh, an inordinate amount of its resources on this war, which I do believe the U.S. wants to stretch out as long as possible. Um, otherwise, they would be pressuring for some sort of a, a peaceful resolution and not be sending all this military hardware. Um, and the sanctions, which are designed to create the, the, the most difficult financial economic situation for the Russian people so that they will turn against their government, just as the U.S. has done with sanctions against North Korea, against Venezuela, against Nicaragua, against Cuba, against Iran, and every other country that it wants to bring down. So I, I don't think, I think progressives, um, anti-imperialist progressives, 
should concentrate their, their efforts on, on demanding that NATO get the hell out of Europe, that the U.S. get out of NATO, that we stop sending arms to, um, to uh, Ukraine and end this proxy war against Russia. But uh, for those who are not anti-imperialists, I, I hope that this discussion tonight has at least opened up a few cracks in the narrative that maybe, you know, did, did people know that there was a vibrant and growing fascist neo-Nazi movement in Ukraine that has been incorporated into the Ukrainian military and is uh, taking a lead role in fighting Russia? Do people know that? Do they know that when they make donations to groups that say they're they're going to be sending uh, military-related equipment to Ukraine, that this is not going to the regular Ukrainian military, which just got $40, million, $40 billion from the U.S., is going to paramilitary organizations who are ideologically aligned with Nazis. Um, I, I just hope that, that you know, maybe people will be a little skeptical. Um, I've never seen a situation in my lifetime, um, and I'm, I go back to the Vietnam era, I've never seen a situation in which the media, the mass media, has so completely parroted the official U.S. line on a foreign war so that there is no questioning of it whatsoever. There's not a hint of skepticism that everything the Ukrainian military puts out is, is taken at face value and that it's just good, by, good guy, bad guy, black and white, good and evil. Um, and, and, and no questioning of the narrative whatsoever. The U.S. hasn't fought a progressive war since World War II, and then it turned that into a war of conquest. Before that, it was a civil war, and those are the only two progressive wars the U.S. has ever fought in its entire history. How the hell can a war against its sworn enemy, Russia, be progressive? Well, Brother C, on a note, you are very generous to U.S. history of your last two examples. But what we would like to do is definitely thank you for your presentation and the narrative that you have shared with our listening audience worldwide. And uh, if anything new come about and important, feel free to let us know and come back to give us an update. We definitely like to thank you for your participation on that first part of two-part series, which has been titled Africa Today. So, Brother Phil, you uh, you got two minutes. Any final thoughts you'd like to say to the listening audience? Well, well, Lee, I really want to thank you for the opportunity to come on, um, both because I really respect the work you're doing, um, because I know you got an audience, um, but also um, because I am in touch with you know with leftist groups, anti-war groups across Europe, um, in Sweden, in uh, in Ukraine, uh, in England. Uh, in Austria, in Denmark, um, and they all say the same thing. They're isolated. Um, they they try to say the same thing that I'm saying, but they're, they're under attack, um, sometimes in the news media, sometimes in social media, and sometimes when they go out on the street to have demonstrations. That's not the situation here in Richmond. Um, and uh, I, I like to think it's because the defenders have a track record on issues other than anti-war issues. We're primarily known for our work around Chaco Bottom or support for prisoners or involvement in community struggles and, and you know, demanding that the Confederate statues come down and so on and so forth. So when we do talk about a foreign policy issue, especially one that we've been involved with for so long personally and have been to the country, that um, people are more likely to at least say, 
well, let me hear what you have to say, rather than, hey, that's just Russian propaganda, and you must be getting money from Putin or something like that. So um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, re- it's reassuring to me that, uh, that we have this opportunity um, and that people are, are, you know, approaching it with an open mind. Um, I, I, I don't expect everyone to take face value everything I say. I hope they don't. I hope people investigate themselves. But I can footnote and document every statement I've made tonight um, with mainstream Western uh, news media, not, not uh, from Russia, not from, you know, leftist forces, not from the anti-war movement, but from mainstream, you know, bourgeois sources who have, uh, you know, covered these issues up until February 24th. And then after February 24th, they clamp down, and there's only one narrative. So, um, again, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for, you know, the exchange. And, uh, yeah, if things come up again, I'll contact you. You contact me. But, um, you know, I'm not going to get interviewed by the Richmond Times-Dispatch or uh, Associated Press. And we do want to get this information out. And how can people who hear this program get access to your newspaper? And how can they get access to maybe interview you to come to your community or their community, speak to their organization, their groups, or what have you? Okay. A um, couple of simple ways. Um, a lot of what I've said is uh, posted on the website of the Odessa Solidarity Campaign. O-D-E-S-S-A, Solidarity Campaign. You can just Google it or adjustasolidaritycampaign.org. To find our newspaper, which has a lot of this uh, same information, but also all the other struggles we work on, virginiadefender.org. Virginiadefender.org. And if somebody wants to get involved with us, um, be helpful on, on any of these struggles, whether it's anti-war, domestic, prison work, chocolate bottom, um, they can email us at DefendersFJE. It's the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice, and Equality. So DefendersFJE at Hotmail.com. DefendersFJE at Hotmail.com. Um, I can give you our, our telephone number, too, if people don't have a, a pencil or pen or, or a tablet uh, or a cell phone. Um, maybe they won't remember it, but it's 804-644-5834. And, Phil, we thank you again. Happy Father Day. and. Um... Thank you. (laughs) Okay, terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Lee. Thank you to everyone who called in, and um, happy Father's Day to everyone to whom that applies. And to our listening audience, this is Africa on the Move. We're going to take a rubbish culture break, and when we come back, we're going to have some announcements from African Women's Association from Brother Haki on the upcoming Cuba trip. We've been advertising and, and announcing to give you a golden opportunity to go and visit Cuba. We're also going to have some announcements from Brother Anthony and the All African People's Representative of IGC as it relates to their upcoming program on the revolutionary life of Kwame Ture, formerly known as Toby Carmichael, and some upcoming events dealing with Cuba in New York City. 
And, of course, I will have a little announcement here and there, and then we'll close out with our final thoughts with our political panelists and audience today. That is coming up shortly. This is Brother Africa from Africa on the Move. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn. 
and baptized in the sound of sensual skin, turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed we need a new beginning let us plant the seed plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow 
Plant the seed for everyone So all the world will know That Palestine, Palestine Needs her freedom, needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine Needs our love Needs our love Palestine Palestine Needs her freedom, needs her freedom, Palestine, Palestine. needs our love. Thank you. We would like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. This is the 19th day of June 2022. You are listening to part one of a two-part series, Africa Today. We just gave you a very unique narrative on Ukraine, and we will continue the discussion next week on Africa as we talk about Africa prison reality. So that will take place next week, part two, on Africa Today. Right now, what we want to do is make a couple of announcements, which is very important to inform our people and the rest of the progressive and revolutionary world of what's going on in our world and to support revolutionary and progressive programs, events. So at this point in time, we're going to bring in Brother Anthony, who is the organizer for the All-African People Revolutionary Party, GC. I know they have an upcoming event and honoring the life, the revolutionary life of Brother Kwame Toure, as well as he can be involved in some other activities around Cuba up in New York. So right now, we're going to bring Brother Anthony in and let him share some events that will be taking place, and hopefully you can find some kind of way to get involved and support it. Brother Anthony, welcome back to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. Uh, Brother Africa, uh, let's see. First of all, I want to announce that we're having a tribute uh, to the revolutionary life of Kwame Ture next Sunday, uh, June 26th, from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, this will be a Zoom uh, presentation and uh, you can access it by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. Or you can call us at 202-246-4896 for more information about the program. The thing for this program this year is students spark revolution and uh, we chose this thing uh you know to uh illustrate to the students and youth that there is an important role that you have to play in our revolutionary struggle for liberation and genuine independence which we need more than ever ever and uh, and uh, if you tune in to this program, 
you'll find out about the uh the contributions that Kwame Ture made uh while he was a, a student and throughout his life to the African liberation process. So please check that out. And um for any of you that are in the uh New York uh area uh this weekend, um if you have some time, there is a demonstration going on in support of the Puerto Rican independence struggle. Bear with me for a moment. Uh, There's going to be a demonstration organized by the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party and at Dag Hammarskjöld Plaza, uh, which is uh, near the UN headquarters in New York. Uh, if you in in the New York area, please check it out. And uh, it's going to be from four to seven p.m. Great. Bear with me for a moment. And uh, it'll be from four to seven p.m. at Damas Harshow Plaza. Uh, the nearest subway stop Grand Central Station in New York, New York. And uh, if you have time, check that out. And also, uh, this Saturday on uh, June 25th, there is going to be a program uh, uh, in honor of the uh, uh a demonstration asking for an end to the blockade of Cuba. And um, it's entitled, We Stand with the World in the U.S. Blockade Against Cuba. And that's going to take place Saturday, June 25th at 1 p.m. at Diversity Plaza at 74th Streets and Roosevelt Avenue in Jackson Heights, Queens. And uh, you can take the ERF train to the Roosevelt Avenue stop or the 7 train to the to the 74th Street stop. And that's going to be at 1 p.m. this Saturday, June 25th. So if you're in the New York area, either uh, either of those days, please uh, check these uh, uh, demonstrations out. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And now we will go to Brother Haki. We will talk a little bit about why the African Awareness Association is organizing a challenge tour to Cuba and why you should support it. Brother Haki. Yes. Well, there are many, many reasons, there are many reasons why people should support uh, a trip to Cuba. Uh, number one, of course, we understand the role historically Cuba has played in terms of assisting the African and liberation struggles in the southern region of Africa. We also understand historically the relationship between the African community here in the U.S. and, and Cubans abroad. 
So, uh, so there are many, many reasons in terms of the this, 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 this connectivity. Uh, but one of the things I think is very important is we listened to the um, the guest tonight, and he talked about in terms of pervasiveness of racism throughout the world. I think one of the things we have to understand, you know, that when we talk about pervasiveness, we mean precisely that. Often we tend to think that racism only is peculiar to the West, but, but, but racism exists throughout the world. And one of the things what makes Cuba particularly special is that when Fidel Castro proclaimed, you know, African blood running through our veins. He spoke to the oneness of humanity. In other words, his position is that there will be no more discrimination, there are no more inequality. All those things that are affiliated with skin color will no longer exist in Cuban society. And for that reason alone, we owe a, a huge, a huge uh, amount of uh, debt to, to to Fidel Castro and the Cuban people in terms of the heroic standing take against this prolific despite we call racism. Uh, also, you know, in Cuba, you get an opportunity, I think, it's important for people uh, once they're to visit the Committees for the Defense of the Revolution to actually talk to the people on the ground who actually in, make it possible in terms of making Cuba one of the best places in the world, one of the best places in the world to live. Uh, one of the things we need to start talking about in terms of tenacity, uh, uh, one of the things in terms of prevailing against a, 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 a superpower you got to have a certain amount of tenacity. You got a certain amount of grit in terms of being able to, you know, confront those challenges, be able to deal with those challenges, and in, in, in spite of all, to you know, to main to main stand fast in terms of your vision, in terms of what the world could be. Cuba position is that there's only one humanity. The position is that you know people have a right to housing, people have a right to shelter, people have a right to medical care, people have a right to education. And when we contrast that with America, and we look in terms of uh, the American philosophy, which says that people do not have a right to, to to housing, people do not have a right to education, people do not have a right to um, uh, uh, to a quality of life that's worthy of a human being. Uh, so clearly, uh, you know, Cuba, in terms of being a beacon or a shining light on the hill, there's no question about that. Cuba's been there historically from the, from 1959 onward, and it continues to do such. Uh, so we encourage people to go to Cuba first and see for themselves the one that is Cuba and to see the great attribution, attributes that Cuba brings to the table as far as humanity is uh, concerned. Uh, one of the things is that I think we, you know, when we talk about learning, uh, when we talk about pervasiveness of racism, one of the things we have to understand is that you know, we need certain organizations in terms of competing uh, to, to, to rebuff uh, racism. If, in fact, we don't have organizations in place to rebuff racism, then effectively what we do is we allow uh, racism to permeate our communities to adversely impact the, the psychological well-being of our people, specifically our children. So we need those institutions, and Cuba is a shining example in terms of institutions that are created to bring the best out of human beings. And so we need those kind of institutions right in America. So by going to Cuba, you get an opportunity to not only talk to the people with the Committee to Defense of the Revolution, but actually to see for its first a lot of the institutions that are in place which make Cuba such a great place to live and why Cuba is such a model for humanity. So we encourage people to come. Now for more information on this trip, people can go to African people can go to <clears throat> excuse me. People go to African Women's Association, P.O. Box four four three three, Richmond VA. For applications we ask you to email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two at gmail.com. And of course this trip takes place July 23rd to July 31st, and we'll be leaving from Cancun, Mexico. But while we're in Cuba, we'll be going to Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba, and Havana. So it's going to be a very, very, um, and <clears throat> very, very enlightful and very, very um, stimulating uh, visit 
and we encourage people to come first and see what makes Cuba such a great place. And uh, please come and see Cuba for yourself and forget about the propaganda and relationship to Cuba and go see yourself firsthand and, 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 and go with, with the idea that you're going to pick up and learn as much as you possibly can in terms of using that information to come back here to build the kind of institutions uh, that are so vital in terms of our struggle for, for human decency here in America. And at this time, we're going to take a quick revolutionary break. We're going to give our panelists some time to reflect today on what took place and some things they might want to share, and we will definitely do that when we come back. This is Africa on the Moon.
friend America, let me see in Africa Hilo piano, Nava Latino Havana of Africa We love in everybody When you come to Africa Feel at home, nobody No matter where you're from
Thank you, Brother Africa. Um, it's been a interesting and uh, very, very uh, uh, enlightening um, program. Uh, I think you know the vast majority of people. Uh, we have to empathize and and have compassion and and, uh, and uh, insights into the, the minds of the vast majority of the people. And I think we are privileged. We're privileged to be part of the intelligentsia, um, and um, so we sometimes we see things a little clearer than other people see. Uh, things that seem clear to us may not seem so clear to them uh, because because of the amount of study you have to take takes in order to to see what imperialism is, what capitalism is, what what exploitation is, uh, um, but I I was a little late getting on the show. I think I got on the show about uh, um, eleven minutes after the start of the show. Uh, that was before the brother got on, uh, and uh, and uh, it was. I guess I got on during the cultural break or whatever. Uh, um, it's been a good show. Uh, I'm, it's been all, as always, it's a pleasure to, to, uh, participate and be able to put in my two cents. And so all power to the people. Thank you. And don't you forget, Brother Moses, every cent counts. So we thank you for your contribution to today's program. Next, we're going to do Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor? Your final thoughts for tonight. Uh, thank you so much, Brother Africa. Thank you for having brother, uh, the brother on the show. Um, I have had dialogue with Brother Moses uh, on the issue of the Ukraine because, quite frankly, this brother parallels uh, the information and knowledge that I share with uh, people concerning the uh, situation in the Ukraine. Uh, when you look at the Ukraine and you look at cities like Odessa or you visit the Ukrainian museums and the art they're taking out, it's Russian art. Uh, the commonality they have is that they're Russian people. The unfortunate circumstances, I am so delighted that this gentleman told the truth about the Ukraine. Every night, the United States Capitol is lit up blue and yellow as we carry out our imperialist war, the Russian people, and as we support uh, a Nazi element within the Ukraine oppressing the people of of several regions of the Ukraine, they decided in 2014 that they uh, would reunite with Mother Russia. And in 1991, as I have said frequently, it was time for NATO to cease and desist. And what we are doing in this United States with this misinformation is outrageous. And the amount of military equipment that we've been sharing and promoting this narrow nationalist activity in the Ukraine is phenomenal. But people with eyes, as well as persons like myself, through art, and literature have become acquainted with the people of Russia. And 
uh, through the Futurist Movement, which reunited Russia for the 19, which united Russia and form, helped form the Soviet Union in 1917, um, found was later uh, in doing some work in the early 21st century didactic exhibits on the European migration to the United States, particularly of Polish people and people of the region of the Ukraine, more often, mostly Polish, uh, now Americans, is the strong Nazi element. And that long before Hitler invaded Poland, there was a fascist element long before the iron fist between Mussolini. But bring us fast forward today. Today you had a show, and as I spoke to Brother uh, Moses a few minutes ago, uh, he says, I've heard this all before from you. I know he's heard it all before from me, but it was really great to have someone well-researched on your show that told people what's going on in the Ukraine. This is not a nationalist war. They're not being oppressed by some oppressor. They are the oppressed. I don't know how the propaganda in the United States has been so perverted that it would have the oppressed, Mother Russia being the oppressed, being uh, and us saying that the Ukraine, the military, Russia made a big mistake. Pushkin has operated with great restraint. And uh, at one point, the two strongest militaries on earth were the Soviet Union or Russia and the USA. But Russia has declined. It's shrunk its military while the U.S. continues to expand it. Russia focused on its people. And our concern has been as the reason I asked the question, because when you have the Secretary of State of the United States on a, on a comedy show, late night show, talking about their information they were sharing with the Ukraine and preparing for this, it was so important that people know, because I am the imperialist, and I stand against the funding of NATO weapons, to the Ukraine, to Poland, and these neo-fascist nations. I also would like to share the fact that the biggest threat I see right now on Earth is totalitarianism, and uh, it's as if 1933 is uh, here again, and we're going to have to struggle to fight and combat fascism like we did from 1933 to 1945. Millions of Russians gave their lives fighting fascism long before the U.S. or Great Britain were interested, long before. So we have been indoctrinated with propaganda that I cannot believe uh, since this February debacle, every television show you can see now looks like a, a CIA production. Hawaii CIS or whatever 
is talking about how the terrible Russians are kidnapping people. This is purely propaganda. It's not, I don't know what's going on in Russia, but I clearly see what's going on in the United States. While the Ukraine, Russia was invading the Ukraine, the U.S. had drone strikes in Somalia, and we continue to support a war in Yemen. This week, uh, when, when someone talks, there's parallel to what happened in Iraq, to what's happening in the Ukraine. Nothing that Russian is doing could ever parallel what we did in Iraq as an expansionist and imperialist killing one million Iraqis. And I hope our audience understands that and that you continue to do these fascinating shows. And I'm so delighted that the very fact that I shared with Brother Moses and shared with many others in speaking about the situation in the Ukraine was presented on your show this evening. And in no way should the public confuse what's going on in the Ukraine with what's going on in Palestine, with what's going on in Yemen, what went on in Iraq, what went on in Libya, what's going on in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And with that in mind, Brother Africa, formed guests in giving, uh, speaking truth to power. And I thank you for your extraordinary work and the fellow analysts. And I wish you all a happy Father's Day and a happy Juneteenth Day. And one thing did happen this week that the residents of the District of Columbia did through their city council. And it, that is, they named the street in front of the Saudi Arabian Embassy, Shoshone, if I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, Drive for the Washington Post reporter that was killed in Turkey, and the Turkish government was complicit. Um, and... Uh, in solidarity with his widow and the people of the Ukraine, so that every letter delivered to Saudi embassy will have to remind them that someone's aware of the atrocity that they committed. And I remind the public that not only do you organize, but politics begins where you stand. And that's rather than being... The larger you deal with the large, but your efforts side with the micro, the small. And we can change the world wherever we stand. And uh, thank you so much, Brother Africa. And I appreciate you allowing me to participate in this forum, and I will continue to do so. And it was delightful once again to hear the truth be told on the Ukrainian situation. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Good night, Sister Eleanor. And like always, we thank you for your contribution to today's program. 
And before I go any further, I would like to give people something to think about. And maybe the remaining panelists can check me one way or another, and I might be wrong, but I do have something on my mind that I'm living a life of contradiction. And I say this because many of us today are so-called celebrating Happy Father's Day. And I really truly don't know what that means when one says Happy Father's Day, or how can they just even make such a statement given the objective history of reality in which we live in a country that's anti-father, we live in a country that's anti-family, we live in a country that kills fathers every day and has denied millions and billions of children for not even having fathers. And those who have fathers, they have locked millions of them up in their dungeons that they call jail. So sometimes, you know, we do things and say things and maybe unconscious of it. So we truly, truly, truly mean what we say in terms of uh, these so-called mythology holidays that these capitalist systems create in order to deceive the people. It really doesn't mean anything. If I'm wrong, hey, email us and let me know what you think. So right now, let's continue to give our final thoughts to our political panelists and analysts for today. And on that note and premise, we will now go to Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, the mic is yours. Yes, thank you, Brother Africa, for having me here on this uh, wonderful show tonight. Uh, just a, a quick response to something um, your guest speaker said, uh, and I interpreted that he stated that it seemed that I've been myself been sitting on the sidelines. I just want to address that I have not been sitting on the sidelines. I have been active for the last 18 years for the struggle of our people and try to organize the youth. So I just wanted to make a quick response to that comment. But overall, thank you so much for having me here again tonight on Africa on the Move. It's been a pleasure of hearing Brother Anthony and Brother Haki. Keep struggling and struggle for it. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Maurice. Nice to hear your voice again. And like you stated, you are a consistent soldier and keep moving forward. Next, we'll go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, give us your final thoughts and um, speak to the people. Brother Haki. Yeah, well, I'm I'm just hoping that, you know, at, at this point, people are beginning to recognize just how convoluted capitalism really is. Uh, one of the things we constantly hear about is attacks on critical race theory, uh, the 69th Project. And it's very, very interesting because, in fact, it's a – is a struggle against the truth, and in the mere fact that truth is is a constant a threat in the minds of, of, of a lot of these right wingers uh, raises a real question in terms of how do they perceive you know uh, human beings. Uh, it's a very very interesting paradox in my mind. And also, you know, recently, you know, there was a there was a, a Fox analyst who talked about the fact that he's going to return his uh, degree back to to Harvard University. Why would he return his degree to Harvard University? Well, according to him, they produce too many "quote unquote" liberals. In other words, his position is that the mere fact that universities teach you how to think is problematic. And stop and think about that for a while. Why would an institution that teach you how to think be problematic? Isn't that the role of higher education to teach you to be more critical in your analysis in terms of how the world is organized? 
So the mere fact that these people position is that you know that that uh, America is best, the nation is dumbed down, is very very problematic. I think, and, and I think it also speaks to the speaks to the role in terms of the worth of human beings. Anytime you have a people who believe that the worth of human beings is defined upon based upon, you know who they are. If in fact you believe that, then certainly you can you you you, you can take liberties in terms of treating those people any kind of way. Simply because in your mind these people are not worthy of respect in the first place, and so clearly this is this is this all very 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 odd. And uh, so I'm certainly hoping that people begin to understand the implicit threat and capitalism poses in terms of in terms of livelihood, not just livelihoods, but the everyday lives of human beings in the society and throughout the world. And on that note, Brother Africa is always I encourage people to unravel the matrix and definitely. Build those institutions, uh, you know, build those organizations that are that will provide credit for the people. Because, you know, uh, one thing is very, very clear, access to information is, is being denied across the board. If we don't make a concerted effort in terms of providing information that people need, the reality is people simply will not receive the information that they need. So clearly we got work to be work to be done and have a say there, Brother Africa, you have a good night. And you the same, Brother Hacking, like always, we thank you as well for your contributions to today's program. Brother Anthony, talk to us. Your final thoughts. Yes. A few things. Um, uh, Let's see. Uh, One, I think um, I thank you for bringing uh, uh, Brother Phil as a guest on tonight. I think you shed a lot of light on the uh, Russia-Ukrainian uh, conflict, and uh, you know, and uh, imperialism's role in advancing it. Uh, I also want to speak briefly to the hype going uh, going on around uh, a new holiday uh that was uh signed to the law uh last, last year um uh, uh let's see uh this uh uh day around uh you know uh the uh the signing of the emancipation proclamation uh and uh today is that uh today is that uh, another one of those mythological holidays you alluded to earlier brother africa and uh my concern is that this will confuse our people even further than they already are uh because the emancipation proclamation did not put an end to chattel slavery in the U.S. It was the struggles and work of our ancestors that put an end to chattel slavery with the passage of the 13th Amendment. And, uh, you know, I think it's very important that people understand that, that just because of uh, this holiday does not mean that our struggle against oppression and exploitation is over with. We have to work harder, that much harder, to free our homeland, Mother Africa. And that is the only way all Africans throughout the world will be free. 
And uh, let's see, and we have to work harder for Pan-Africanism than ever. And uh, you can find out more about how by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org, for more information. And on that note, thanks for having me. Thank you, Brother Anthony, always. We enjoyed your input and insight to many of the issues that we express on this program, like all of the panelists. To our listening audience, this has been Africa on the Move. I've been your host, Brother Africa. We ask you um, again, we would like to have direct contact with you. If you listen to this program and you want to support this program, please let us know just by emailing us. Uh, one liner, we listen to Africa on the Move, or we support Africa on the Move, and email us at Africa on the Move at gmail.com so we have a direct relationship where we can share information with you and keep you informed. We are happy to know that you listen to us, but we need to identify our listeners. So if you can do that, we'd be very appreciative. Also, we hope that today and other days, past and the future, that we can continue to provide you with information so you can think and introduce you to organizations, so you can act and think more clearly. Because one of the fundamental weaknesses we have as a people is that we are disorganized. We have been organized to be disorganized. And we know if we are to defeat an organized force, then we must be more organized than that organized force. An unorganized force cannot defeat an organized force. So therefore, we must be organized. So again, join us next Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Spread the word. We would like to increase our listenership. And we only can do that by you working and supporting us and spreading the word. So until next time, we will say a Luther continue. The struggle continue. And for the next 13 minutes, we will play some music of inspiration and liberation. And we thank you for supporting Africa on the Move. And also, we like to remind you, you are giving a special opportunity to go to Cuba, contact the African Wellness Association, make your contribution, show your appreciation, go and see Cuba for yourself. Contact the African Wellness Association by emailing them at African Wellness Association 2 at gmail.com. Also visit the AAPRPGC website and make sure you participate on the 26th of this month as they do a salute on the life and legacy of Brother Kwame Toure, and support all Cuba activities that will be taking place up in New York on the 20th and 25th. So, again, let's participate. Let's elevate our activities. And above all, let's not sit on the sideline when our people is oppressed. Because if you sit on the sideline when your people are oppressed, that means by your own actions, you are helping to oppress your people. 
So don't fall on the wrong side of history like America does all the time. So until next time, brothers, sisters, friends, allies, and relatives, let's strive to go ever, backwards and ever, and we leave you with some music and inspiration and liberation. This has been Africa on the Moon. And I'm Brother Africa, and we'll see you next week. You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state and people, well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You'd be killing each other if there were no police. But the reality is, the police become necessary in human society. You know how we think, organize the hood under our chain banners Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas FBI spying on us through the radio antennas And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society With no respect for the people's right to privacy I'm taking slugs for the cause like Huey P While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P I wanna be free to live, able to have what I need to live Bring the power back to the street where the people live We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons Dying over money and relying on religion for help We do for self like ants in a colony Organize the wealth into a socialist economy A way of life based off the common needs And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed Shout out to black male, live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough no more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rather get shot in their back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks. Denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map That's why I write the shit I write in my rap It's documented, I meant it Every day of the week, I live in it, breathe in it It's more than just fucking believing it I'm holding in ones, rolling up my sleeves and shit It's c low for push-ups now, many-headed for one conclusion Niggas ain't ready for revolution Yeah, I've been blackmailed, live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice and the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? We living in a police state
I'm a bigger boss than Rick Ross. Always winning, nigga get lost. It's the warlord, bring the voodoo. When I bail through, it's crazy like Bellevue. What they tell you, that leave that boy alone, like home alone. Yeah. Fuck a skull and bone, arrest the president. You got the evidence, that nigga is Russian intelligence. When it rains, it pours. Did you know the new pipe was orange? Boy, you're showing your horns. They trying to replace my halo with thorns. You so basic with your bait sticks. Let's go ape shit in the matrix. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. I took back my eyes and all black tonight. That's right, some niggas gotta sacrifice. Not a criminal. No, I'm a seminal. Yeah. I was free once. Now I'm clinical. You so technical. This was Mexico. Now everywhere I go is owned by Mexico. Fuck them. Fuck them and the rest Hell of you. Yeah. I turn a phone to a back hopper. I'ma roll with the aliens. Man, fuck these homo sapiens. They don't really want to make friends. All they want is a Mercedes Benz. All they want is they dividends and decibels. Fuck these citizens. They'll treat us like hooligans. Throw him in. They don't care what school he in. These people don't play fair. It ain't even fair at the state fair. Give a young nigga gray hair. That's why I'm here. Make your ass lay there. You better stay there. Close your fucking eyes like a daycare. Make myself clearer than Shakespeare. I'm here to take money, even fake hair. So desperate is what I'm left with. For the record, you affected. Who you elected is so septic, so full of shit. I can't accept it. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. I reside on the west side. I murder with my third eye. Nigga so fly, get a bird's eye. I make him scream bloody murder. Let's meet at the White House. Run in and turn the lights out. Man, they treat it like a trap house. These motherfuckers never take the trash out. They just cash out and mash out. Nigga, take your drugs and pass out. Niggas love to go that fast route. I see you when your black ass get out. Homie, you play too much. Why these devils, they doing way too much. Most of them won't say too much. Why they steady planning? God knows what. That's why I roll with the real ones. Real ones, trying to reach millions. Real ones, trying to make billions. Real ones, dressed like civilians. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Big 
about me go In a Milan Digging up the pearl In a Milan Dig out me diamond We are gonna fight, 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 fight Yes, the party
Work it out. I'm, I'm so proud. I got some shakeable face. 
Welcome to Pilgrim And to the Buffaloes Who once ruled a plane Like the vultures Circling beneath the dark clouds Looking for the rain Looking for the rain Just like the city that stagger on the coastline In a nation that just can't stand much more Like the forest buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter Winter in America Yes, and all of the hills Have been killed Sit away Yeah, but the people know The people know it's winter In America And ain't nobody fighting Cause nobody knows what to say Save your soul Lord knows from winter in America The Constitution A noble piece of paper with free society The struggle but they died in vain And now democracy Is a ragtime on the corner A hope and false rain It's looking like he's a hope and Hope and false rain And I see the robbers First in barren treetops Watching last its races Marching across the floor But just like the peace signs That vanished in our dreams Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter in America and all of the hillers have been killed or betrayed yeah but the people know the people know it's winter Lord knows it's winter in America Nobody knows what to say Save your soul From a winter in America
it's a winner Winter in America And all of the hillers Done been killed Sit away Unify us, don't divide us. Unify us, don't divide us. 
listen to me. Is a blast against 
characterized by mutual respect. Our nation at its best feeds the hungry. Our nation at its worst, at its worst, our nation will have partnership with South Africa. Free, 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 free. Free, 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 free. 